Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and your host for this show. And in this episode, I begin a series on the strange world of alchemy, exploring what it is and how it's relevant to the practice of the symbolic life. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. I had very soon seen that analytical psychology coincided in a most curious way with alchemy. The experiences of the alchemists were, in a sense, my experiences, and their world was my world. This was, of course, a momentous discovery. I had stumbled upon the historical counterpart of my psychology of the unconscious. One area of Jung's work that tends to cause some difficulty for many people is his study of alchemy. This is certainly true for those who are new to Jung's writings or who have only a passing familiarity with them. But it can also be true for many serious students of Jung as well. These people may be quite at home with Jung's core concepts, persona, shadow, anima, and animus, ego, and self. But when the discussion turns to the rather esoteric subject of alchemy, with its bizarre imagery, dragons eating their own tails, winged lions, the transmutation of lead into gold, the marriage of Sol and Luna. Their eyes glaze over and their interest drops away. And this is not a criticism, by the way. Alchemy is difficult stuff and not a way of thinking or imagining for which many people have a natural affinity. As a consequence, it can take a great deal of study of the subject to even begin to get oriented to it. Until then, whatever we read of alchemy can seem like just so much word salad. We struggle to see the relevance of these arcane images and ideas to everyday psychological experiences. Now, to be fair, this is really no different than, say, making sense of the ritual of the Eucharist for someone who is unfamiliar, and not to mention very many who are quite familiar with Christianity. We could also say the same for such things as understanding the concept of dependent origination in Buddhism, 
grasping the intricacies of quantum physics, or plumbing the depths of the modernist movement in poetry. In each case, some training of the mind and the imagination is required before we can take up a right relationship to the particular discipline with which we are concerned. Until we gain some sense of orientation within a given symbolic universe, that is, it's impossible for us to even see what we're looking at, let alone begin to understand it. Of course, alchemy seems to stand apart from those other disciplines I just mentioned. Understandably, we experience it as being further from our minds than the rest, the most obscure of anachronisms, the most impenetrable of historical oddities ever produced by the human imagination. Jung himself felt that the whole enterprise was something of a questionable one at first. Even after he had begun to sense that there was something valuable to be learned from alchemy and had purchased the first of what would become an extensive library of old alchemical texts, Jung struggled to get started with it. I let this book lie almost untouched for nearly two years, he says in Memories, Dreams, Reflections. Occasionally, I would look at the pictures, and each time I would think, good Lord, what nonsense. This stuff is impossible to understand. Eventually, he began to recognize, as he says, that the alchemists were talking in symbols, those old acquaintances of mine. He then set out to systematically decipher this symbolic language. Now, Jung's method for this was long and laborious. He developed a series of notebooks in which he recorded key phrases that were repeated over and over in the literature. For each phrase, he would track the different ways in which it was used in different contexts and in different treatises. And in this way, he created an extensive key by which the meaning of such terms as lapis philosophorum, prima materia, aqua vitae, and mercurius eventually came into focus. Marie-Louise von Franz comments on this labor of Jung's. If you read Psychology and Alchemy, she says, or the Mysterium Conjunctionis, then you may sigh and complain that it is difficult reading. But I can only say that if you do so, you are the most ungrateful people who exist. You should see the original literature from which Jung extracted it, the dung heap from which he extracted the gold to be found in his books, you have to read pages and pages of blah, blah, or unintelligible stuff to find from time to time a psychologically understandable sentence. Now, given all these inherent challenges, and given that even though Jung made alchemy more understandable in his own writings, and it still 
difficult reading, requiring yet further clarification from those who came after him, it's not unreasonable to ask, why bother? What benefits can be gained from becoming familiar with the puzzling lexicon of alchemical symbolism? What value does an understanding of alchemy have for the purposes of everyday living? For Jung, alchemy provided him with a bridge back to the world following the lonely period of his personal confrontation with the unconscious. This profound engagement with his own inner world, his ongoing dialogue with the images and figures that populated his psychological life, was to become the raw material for his psychological theories. But without some historical parallel, without evidence that others had had similar experiences and encountered similar inner dynamics, Jung's experience would have been simply that, Jung's subjective and solitary experience. In the alchemical tradition, Jung found a body of images, ideas, and experiences that paralleled and therefore corroborated his own. As he says in our opening quote, the experiences of the alchemists were, in a sense, my experiences, and their world was my world. This was, of course, a momentous discovery. I had stumbled upon the historical counterpart of my psychology of the unconscious. Alchemy, we could say, proved that Jung's psychological experiences were not just personal idiosyncrasies, but general human possibilities, and therefore expressions of the nature of the human psyche itself. And this, of course, is what Jung had been observing in the dreams of his patients. They were full of images that pointed beyond merely personal memories, but rather expressed similar motifs as those found in mythological and religious symbolism. The images of alchemy provided Jung with a symbolic language that helped him make sense of much that was still obscure in the psychological material of his patients. In particular, it lent support to his notion of individuation. That is, that psychological processes tend to be future-oriented, to work toward a process of growth and development. And with this, we begin to touch on how alchemy can be useful on the level of individual and everyday experience. What Jung observed in his patient's dreams, also takes place in our own. Our dreams are filled with unusual images that often have no obvious reference in our personal lives. Or to put it another way, unbeknownst to most of us, our dreams are filled with mythological, religious, and yes, alchemical images. A familiarity with some of the motifs of alchemy, then, 
gives us an excellent way of amplifying and understanding our own psychic material. As the Jungian analyst Edward Edinger writes in his book, Anatomy of the Psyche, a fantastic resource, by the way, for developing just such a familiarity with alchemical symbolism. He says, taken as a whole, alchemy provides a kind of anatomy of individuation. Its images, he explains, concretize the experiences of transformation that are the primary feature of the individuation process. Now, an example will help to make this a little clearer. There's an alchemical text that dates from the 16th century called the Rosarium Philosophorum. It consists of a series of pictures that depict a sequence of some kind of development. What that development might be would be difficult to determine with just a casual glance at the images, since they're filled with obscure symbolism. And each picture in the series is accompanied by a collection of sayings which form a kind of commentary on the images, though they don't necessarily reference the images directly, since they're passages gathered from other sources. And there's an early section of this picture series that begins with an image of a king and a queen with a dove descending between them. Then comes another image of the king and queen in the same position, but now they're naked. And after this comes an image of the naked king and queen, this time sitting in a bath and still with the dove descending between them. And Jung, in his psychological interpretation of the Rosarium, calls this picture immersion in the bath. And here's a part of the text associated with this image. There is the conjunction of two bodies made, and it is necessary in our magistery. And if but one of our two bodies only should be in our stone, it would never give tincture by any means. Therefore, the philosopher saith, The wind hath carried him in his belly, wherefore it is manifest. The wind is the air, and the air is the life, and the life is the soul, that is, oil and water. Now, I think you can begin, even in just that short passage, to get a sense of the obscurity of alchemical imagery, some of the dung heap and blah, blah that Marie-Louise von Franz describes. Clearly, these images and ideas need some deciphering. Either that, or they are simply nonsensical, which is a conclusion that many people have come to regarding this material. The same difficulty, as Jung points out, exists with the images of our dreams. Often enough, he writes, dreams appear senseless, but it is obviously we 
who lack the sense and ingenuity to read the enigmatic message from the nocturnal realm of the psyche. One particular value of alchemical imagery is that it's at home with the grotesque, the embarrassing, and the most messy and raw aspects of human experience. There are plenty of dreams filled with bathroom imagery, right? Feces and urine, with sexual imagery, illicit attractions, strange erotic couplings, finding oneself naked in public, and with ethically questionable imagery, stealing, violence, killing. All of this is taken up by alchemy as just so many metaphors for the process of spiritual and psychological transformation. A dream, for instance, in which you find yourself taking a bath with or perhaps sitting in a hot tub with someone you wouldn't normally be with or even would prefer not to be with, right? Your parent, your sibling, or even your therapist can take on new meaning when seen through the lens of the immersion in the bath image from the Rosarium Philosophorum. What on the surface feels uncomfortable or even repulsive may in fact have unexpected depths within it. There is a conjunction of two bodies made, reads the text. The bath is a common symbol that points to the alchemical operation of salutio. And this operation involves dissolving something solid in a liquid solution. And if two substances are dissolved in the same solution, they become mixed together, right? United, creating something new. Now, the goal of the alchemical opus was the production of the philosopher's stone, which was an image of wholeness, of completeness. So when we hear in our text, if but one of our two bodies only should be in our stone, it would never give tincture by any means. It points to this need for completeness, for the combination of different qualities. The solar nature of the king needs to be balanced by the lunar nature of the queen, or, to put it in psychological terms, our conscious attitude needs to be rounded out by the creative unconscious. So when, in our dreams, we're joined in a bath by someone unexpected or even unwelcome, we might begin to wonder what kind of solution is being created by this mixture of elements, the qualities or attitudes that each of the parties represents. Does the image of the other person suggest traits or attributes that might complement or round out our own? help us see things with new eyes, temper our own excesses in some way. And if they do bring a positive value that we lack, can we let our own fixed nature 
begin to be broken down enough, to dissolve enough, to incorporate something new. And this, of course, is just one example from the vast body of alchemical symbolism, but in some way, it goes to the heart of alchemy, which is about transformation, the dissolving of the old and the consolidation of the new. As challenging and foreign as alchemical imagery is, it can be a useful mirror of our own souls, which are also challenging and foreign, calling us, despite ourselves and our conscious wishes, toward continual change and growth. And this is what the other part of our text is all about. Therefore the philosopher saith, The wind hath carried him in his belly, wherefore it is manifest, the wind is the air, and the air is the life, and the life is the soul, that is, oil and water. Now remember that the Rosarium picture not only showed the king and the queen in the bath, but also a descending dove, an image of the Holy Spirit. The wind, or the air, then, refers to spirit. The wind is the air, and the air is the life. This immersion in the bath and conjunction of elements within it brings new life, brings renewal. It's not just a bath. It's a baptism. That's what the strange image of the soul as oil and water means. Oil and water are the elements used in the Catholic ritual of baptism. In the bath, the old life is dissolved, and the new life, the new state of consciousness, is born. Now, over the next few episodes, I'm going to be looking at some of the different aspects of alchemy and their relation to the symbolic life. Alchemy, in many ways, is the model par excellence of the symbolic life. The alchemists performed a series of experiments and operations on their material and observed the chemical reactions and changes that resulted. But it was not just the material that was changed, but the alchemists themselves. The transformation of the material mirrored their own their work was understood to be physica et mystica, both physical and spiritual. And so it is with the symbolic life. And that's the takeaway here. The point of having some kind of practice of the symbolic life is not simply for the purpose of intellectual curiosity personal vanity, or some form of entertainment. It's a means of psychological and spiritual growth. As such, it involves us at the deepest levels of our being. We can't just stand back and be observers. We must engage the process 
with our full participation. Ultimately, we have to recognize that we are the material being worked on, and we are the goal toward which we strive. We, too, are in the bath. I'll be back in just a minute with this week's parting words. You'll find a list of all the sources used in this week's episode in the show notes. You'll also find links to connect with me on social media, as well as for my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the production of this show. You can do so for as little as the cost of a cup of coffee at Buy Me a Coffee. You'll even find some extras for this show posted there from time to time. Just hit the Support the Show link in the show notes. Thank you very much. Now here are this week's parting words. The following quote comes from Anatomy of the Psyche by Edward Ettinger, which I mentioned a little earlier. It's a great summary of the participatory nature of the alchemical process, and by extension, the symbolic life. In this passage, you'll hear a couple of terms, opus and prima materia and the philosopher's stone, which I'll be looking at in more detail in the upcoming episodes of this series on alchemy. One of the things that I love about this quote is the description in the very last sentence of the goal of the alchemical work. So here it is. Paying attention to the imagery of the objective psyche, such as alchemy, generates auspicious reciprocal effects. The psychological rule is the unconscious takes the same attitude toward the ego as the ego takes toward it. If one pays friendly attention to the unconscious, it becomes helpful to the ego. Gradually, the realization dawns that a mutual opus is being performed. The ego needs the guidance and direction of the unconscious to have a meaningful life. And the latent philosopher's stone imprisoned in the prima materia needs the devoted efforts of the conscious ego to come into actuality. Together, they work on the great magistry to create more and more consciousness in the universe. Until next time.